Well, it's great to see all of you guys here on this Good Friday. You know, the more and more people I talk to about Good Friday, I discover the less and less they know about Good Friday. Just last week, I was talking to someone and they said, so what are you doing for uh, uh, over Easter weekend? And I said, well, you know, I've got Good Friday service and then I have Resurrection Sunday service. Yeah, what's with that Good Friday? Oh, that's when we remember the public execution of Jesus Christ. And they're like, that's a good thing. Well, yeah, it's a great thing. And here's why. See, it wasn't a tragic occurrence. It was a triumphant event. He wasn't a victim. He was a victor. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ allows us to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, you can't really enjoy the good news until you first hear the bad news. And tonight, we're going to look at, from Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, at Mark's account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I think that you'll be absolutely amazed to discover that this event alone, which to this day still rock the annals of history, meaning that they can't do away with this event, a man born in a barn, never traveled farther than 100 miles from Bethlehem. He was only alive for 33 years, and yet his crucifixion is what we set the clock by, right? B.C. and A.D. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was an event that is eternally etched in the history of God's creation. Why? Because it was from the very beginning God's intent to allow His Son to experience this moment. During the life of Jesus, He called it His hour. And throughout His ministry, the three years that He ministered to the people there in Israel, they continuously tried to either exalt Him or kill Him. And at either one of those points in time, he would say, my hour has not yet come until we come to the crucifixion. The night before he prayed, he said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from my hands. But there wasn't any other way. Then he said, Lord, he said to his father, Father, please glorify me that I may glorify you. And in the event of the crucifixion, we find one of the greatest invitations to believe in Jesus Christ. And in the belief of Christ, lives are changed, even to this day, 2,000 years removed from the crucifixion. So we pick it up in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, starting in verse 24. And we start with that definitive statement when Mark writes, he says, And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him, and the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right hand, the other on his left. 
So the scripture was fulfilled, saying, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others, and himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he had cried like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There are four things in our text this evening that invite someone to believe in Christ. We begin with the sign, the inscription that was placed over the condemned. That inscription would entail or declare what that individual was being executed for. But since Christ was innocent of everything, perfect in all ways, all they could do was give him the inscription in which he rightfully claimed that he was the king of the Jews. Now, I don't know about you, but I have had numerous um, uh, times in my Christian life when I'm sharing with someone about Jesus, they'll say to me inevitably, well, if God will give me a sign right here, right now, I will believe. You know, I said, well, you better watch out. Others have asked for a sign too, and they got brimstone and fire and all kinds of things. But yet, the Bible clearly tells us that signs and wonders alone aren't sufficient to bring someone to Jesus. In fact, it's absolutely clear from the Gospels that those living at that time saw Jesus do many various miracles, many various wonders, all to describe and to declare who he was, and yet, they still missed it. People think that a miracle is going to be persuasive enough to bring someone to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Well, if it was an experiential pursuit, or if it was an intellectual pursuit, maybe that would be the case. But coming to Jesus Christ is not a work of ourselves, it's a work of the Spirit within us. It is a work of God upon us, bringing us and leading us to saving faith in his son, Jesus. 
So we may convince someone intellectually that God exists and Jesus is exactly who he said he was. We may find someone that we are sharing with that really just feels that they need to experience things before they will believe. But let us be honest that the Bible clearly tells us that neither one of those things alone can bring someone to true saving faith. And it certainly cannot produce within them the regeneration of being born again, that it's completely a work of the Spirit of God. The Pharisees, even after seeing all that they saw, said this in Matthew's Gospel 16 verses 1 through 4. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came to him, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. He says, hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. For a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, and he left them and departed. See, they were without excuse. Oh, they knew about the water into wine. They knew about the feeding of the 5,000 and the encore of the feeding of the 4,000. They knew about Jesus raising the little girl from the dead and his friend Lazarus. They knew that he was healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, allowing the lame to walk. And yet they still sought after a sign to confirm that he was the Messiah. Even though they knew that the Old Testament declared him that the Messiah would come and do all of these things. It just goes to show that even when signs are given and wonders are performed, people can still reject the truth. But here in our text, one last effort is given, a sign, a literal sign is given, declaring that Jesus Christ was exactly who he said he was. In fact, it infuriated the religious leaders at that time. For John wrote in his gospel in John 19, verses 19 through 22, Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered and said, what I have written, I have written. The greatest tool that we have to show anyone Christ is God's word. The written word of God. In the hands of the Holy Spirit, it can transform lives. It can bring someone from uh, death to life from darkness to light. And once a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that same spirit working in that same word can produce growth in the life of the believer, transforming them, not just simply transitioning them, transforming them into the image of Jesus Christ. The word of God 
is given to us that we may know that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Now, there are many people who go by the motto, seeing is believing. But the Bible is just the opposite. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, believe and you shall see. For example, he said in John's Gospel again, in John eleven forty, he said, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? If you want to see, then let me invite you to believe. And we begin with the invitation of the true knowledge of that one who hung from the cross 2,000 years ago on our behalf. But it doesn't end there. Notice with me as we continue on. In verse 27, there was also the the display of the choice. And with him, there were also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which said, and he was numbered with the transgressors. When Christ was crucified, he was crucified between two thieves, two individuals that were guilty of their crimes and now were suffering the consequences of their crimes. But as the onlookers looked on, gazed on, they saw a conversation taking place amongst the three hanging from the crosses. One was mocking Jesus, reviling him. The other began to have a change of heart while he hung there on the cross. And those witnessing this must have been confronted with the reality that Jesus Christ demands a choice. What do I mean by that? See, there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Do we all understand that? The Bible says either you're for him or you're against him. There's no fine line to walk. There's no fence, that proverbial fence that many Christians, well, they're on the fence. You know, there is no fence. Either you're for him, or you are against him. And as they were watching these three converse there on the cross, one comes to the realization that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And we read in Luke's gospel, chapter 23, verses 39 through 43, then one of the criminals who who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. How naive are people, right? We read this earlier. Oh, if he's truly the Christ, then he'll come down. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? How naive are we? The whole purpose of him being there was not for himself, but for us. He remained there. He hung there. He died there that you and I may live. But yet, they were still naive to the whole event that was taking place before them. And I'm convinced that many who do not know the Lord today in our culture, in our world, in 2023, when they look into the church, they don't understand what's going on. They don't get it. They don't understand who Jesus is anymore. They don't understand what Jesus has done on their behalf. They, they know what we're against more than what, we know, what they know that we are for. 
People have this misconceived notion of what Christianity is. And as a result, many people write off Christ because they simply don't understand the church. The people didn't understand at that time. The thief on the cross who was dying for his sins and would die eternally didn't understand what was going on. But the other did. Notice with me that in verse 40, he says, But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do, not even, do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. If we are going to win this world to Christ, if we are going to be that bridge between them and Christ, then we need, we need to display Jesus as he's meant to be displayed. We need to show the world around us that we are truly following Jesus Christ and it is him and him alone that we follow. Now, this isn't the first time that the people were confronted with a choice, was it? Earlier on, we read that Pilate gathered all of Jerusalem together, that they may decide between Jesus and another one called Barabbas. And as a result, they cried out for Barabbas. They did so because they believed that Barabbas was going to fulfill their temporal need that Jesus didn't appear to be interested in fulfilling. They believed that Barabbas was going to be a quicker means to an end, to release them and to see them out from the oppression of the Roman Empire. They thought Jesus was going to be that one, and that's why they hailed him on that day that we know as Palm Sunday. And they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. They believed that their liberator had come, but they didn't understand that the liberation in which he brought forward wasn't from the oppression of the Roman Empire, it was from the oppression of Satan and sin. And they didn't understand. And then when they saw Jesus conversing with the Romans, especially the centurion, they felt that he had betrayed them, and they began to cry out for Barabbas, believing that he would be a quicker means to see them liberated from the oppression of Rome. See, they thought in their minds that their greatest need was their temporal need, their freedom from the bondage and oppression of Rome. But God saw their real need. God saw the need that was destroying all of them. And that was the need for the deliverance from their sin. He knew that that's what led people to the grave. One out of one person dies because of sin. That's why I'm convinced that God will always provide our needs. But those needs may not correlate with our wants. And as a result, we often sometimes feel that God has let us down. Please know and understand that God is always more concerned with your eternal glory than your temporal comfort. Oh, sure, he blesses us. He provides for us. He gives us good things. Certainly he does. 
But ultimately, the ministry of Christ, his first coming, was to alleviate their bondage to sin and therefore their bondage to death. But they didn't understand that. And though they cried out for Barabbas, that moment in front of Pilate that sent Christ to his crucifixion, once again, standing at the foot of the cross, they are confronted with the reality that one will reject, one will receive, and the one who receives will join Christ in paradise for all eternity. As we continue on, we then discover that something really unique happens. And we find this in verse 33 of our text. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. In the middle of the day, at the point where the sun is the highest, a darkness enveloped the entire area. And in that moment of darkness, the Bible says that the earth began to quake like never before. And that people began to be fearful because they didn't understand and know what was happening before them. But they started to get an idea that something more was happening than just the uh, crucifixion of a so-called false prophet. But in those hours of darkness, one of the most unique theological occurrences happened. And that is when God the Father poured out His wrath upon His only Son. The wrath of all man's sins was poured out on the shoulders of Jesus Christ in that period of darkness. The onlookers just saw the darkness. They felt the ground quake. They heard the words of Jesus, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And then they saw him dismiss his spirit. But what was occurring in those hours was each and every one of ours personal fate being played out on the shoulders of Christ. You see, the very first thing that happens when we sin from the very beginning is that we were then propelled into darkness. And when we die apart from Christ, the very first thing we experience is darkness. And throughout the Old Testament, darkness indicates God's judgment. So from the time that we are born, in sin, to the time that we die, we are under the weight of God's judgment. That's what the Bible tells us. That we are at enmity with God and that the wrath of God is upon us and that we, are we were children of wrath before coming to Jesus Christ. So the very first thing that Jesus took on our behalf was the wrath of God. God poured it upon His shoulders but that wrath, that judgment, the sin that was laid on his shoulders led to the second element, and that is the separation. You see, our sin separates us from God. God so much desires and wants to have a relationship with you through Christ. But our sin separates us from that relationship. And the only way to overcome that is not in and through our own ability, it's not in and through what we can do or have done. 
It's completely dependent on what Christ has done on our behalf. He cried out the, the way he did, fulfilling Psalm 22. He cried out that way to indicate that God the Father had turned his back on his only begotten Son in that moment. Why? Because God the Father could not look upon the sin that was laid upon Christ's shoulders. And as a result, the separation occurred. And that was something that Christ up until this moment had never experienced. And we know that if we die apart from Christ, we are separated from God for all eternity. To reside in a place that wasn't even created for you and I. It was created for the devil and his angels, the Bible tells us. A place that we know is hell. So not only did he weather the judgment of God, but he endured the separation from God, then ultimately leading to that third step where he breathed his last and died. That is the three-step process of judgment that anyone apart from Jesus Christ will experience. That judgment that separation, and finally death. Eternal life is knowing God for all eternity. John 17 tells us that. And a separation from Christ, a separation from God for all eternity is truly biblical death. And you and I today do not have to fear the judgment of God, the separation from God, or the death that results from the sin in which we have committed because all of that, Christ suffered for us on our behalf on the day that we call the crucifixion of Christ. In those hours of darkness, as one wrote, he said, in the ultimate moment of his agony, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was as if the Father had turned his back on his Son as Jesus bore the sins of humanity. Then Jesus declared, it is finished. And the provision of the redemption was complete. As another one wrote, he said, we must keep in mind what our Lord accomplished on the cross was an eternal transaction that involved him and the Father. He did not die as a martyr who had failed in a lost cause, nor was he the only uh, an example for people to follow. But Isaiah 53 makes it clear that Jesus did not die for his own sins because he had none. He died for our sins. He made his soul an offering for sin. And just before he breathed his last, he cried out in a declaration, It is finished. Three words that you and I as Christians should celebrate each and every day of our Christian life. Knowing that Christ had accomplished all that God the Father had sent him to accomplish. As Mark wrote in Mark 15, 37, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and breathed his last. John 19.30 tells us, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, it is finished, he cried, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus Christ, what did he mean when he cried out? Not just simply whispered, but cried out, Tetelestai! 
What did he mean by that word? And why was that? Not a cry of anguish, but a declaration of victory that you and I celebrate each and every day of our new life in Jesus Christ. Well, that question is something that the early church had also. They didn't fully understand all that had happened in and through the life of Jesus Christ. They didn't quite get this idea of the new covenant that superseded the one that they were so accustomed to that was given to them by Moses. So John wrote his follow-up epistle, 1 John. And in it, he often answered questions that he knew arose from the Gospel of John. And in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and I'll read it for you, he uses a word that you may not be familiar with. He says, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't go around using the word propitiation in my everyday conversation, do you? It's a word that we are very ill-familiar with in our culture. It's a term that means just that, means by which. And in this case, and in this context, it means means by which Christ is able to forgive us. Why? Because Christ, in and of himself, satisfied the requirement of the remission of sins, the spilling of blood, his blood. He then becomes the propitiation, the means by which we can receive salvation. What we were destined to experience by faith, we've appropriated and we've made our own, and Christ then departs to us the new life that only he can give us. This propitiation separates him from every other religion in the world, as does the giving of the Holy Spirit. But this word propitiation that John uses is one that is absolutely cemented in its resolve, meaning it cannot be overcome. It's an accounting term. It's a term that is used to tell us die is an accounting term that's used for paid in full. There's nothing more required. Propitiation means a, satisfy, a satisfaction and a means by which we can be forgiven. If Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross, we could never be forgiven. If he didn't rise on the third day, we would know that his sacrifice wasn't accepted by God the Father, but we do know. And as a result, he made a way to God that can never be shut. And he broke the Satan's stronghold over all humanity once and for all. And this was demonstrated in a very unique way. In Mark's Gospel, verse 38, it says, When this all occurred, then the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. It means the Holy of Holies was now accessible to anyone who desired to enter. What was forbidden in the past was now readily available in the present. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, that we can now go boldly into the throne room of God. And one Hebrew scholar says that that word going boldly in Greek can also be uh, translated running in and jumping on dad's lap. 
Very interesting. Christ is the one who made all of this possible. And it was in and through the cross. The barrier of separation between man and God was removed once and for all. And this is why Jesus could say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We can't celebrate the resurrection if we don't first experience the crucifixion. The same is true in our Christian life. We will never walk in victory. We will never appropriate the promises of God that He has given us properly if we don't see ourselves dead to the old life and alive in the new. The old life dying with Christ there on the cross and living in the new resurrected life that God is capable of giving us. Now, just as it was then, it is today. When people hear this, some will mock. It says here in our text that they were wagging their heads. Well, let me give you a 2023 interpretation, or better yet, in translation of that Greek word. They rolled their eyes like only a teenager could. Oh, give me a break. He could save everyone else, but he can't save himself. You're going to build the temple, destroy it, and rebuild it in three days? Give me a break. They wagged their head and mocked him. The religious leaders criticized him. But the Roman centurion was standing there at that moment. Now, in that culture, the Roman centurion had one job. Once the criminal was on the cross, crucified, he had one job. He was to stare the entire time. And he was waiting for their exact time of death so they could record it in the Roman log. So he sat there and stared at Jesus that whole time that he was on the cross. He didn't want to turn away. He didn't want to miss the actual death. And yet, his conclusion was this. He was truly the Son of God. Now, this could have gotten him executed in that culture because Nero claimed to be the Son of God. I should say the Caesar claimed to be the Son of God. But this Roman centurion says, I don't know about Caesar, but this is it. This is it right here. He is right here in front of us, the true son of God. But others believed. They realized, like the thief on the cross, that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And as God invites us all today to believe, through the sign that was given, through the choice that was displayed, through the darkness that it, he was engulfed within, the declaration of it is finished that was made. All of this invites us to believe that he is truly, as that centurion said, the Son of God, God himself. But I don't want you to leave without knowing this, that that moment in time was also the greatest expression of love that God could ever show the world. In that moment, these words were fulfilled that Jesus spoke in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever shall believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So when one says to me, how can you call the public execution of your Jesus in whom you love good? I can tell him this. 
It's not good. It's great. Because it wasn't a tragedy. It was a triumph. He wasn't a victim. He was a victor. And because of that day, three days later is coming. Stay tuned for part two this Sunday at 10 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel. Amen? Amen. Amen. <laughs>